Chapter 1. Late on the morning of April 5, 2011, three men walked into the science building on the campus of the University of Coimbra in central Portugal. When a young biologist who worked in the building arrived around 10.30, she found the men waiting outside a locked door on the second floor, sitting on a pair of couches next to a stuffed ostrich. The oldest of the three looked to be in his mid-forties and was overweight, with red hair and ruddy cheeks. For a half hour or so, he had been asking anyone who walked past about seeing the small natural history collection behind the door. He had an Irish accent, and there was something strange about his persistence. He kept talking about trophies, Pedro Casalero, the museum's deputy director, told me. He said they wanted to see the trophies. The University of Coimbra, which was established in Lisbon in 1290 and moved to its current location in the 16th century, is Portugal's oldest university and one of the oldest in the world. Its science department, housed in a stately neoclassical building on a hilltop with a commanding view of Coimbra's terracotta-tiled skyline, is of comparatively recent vintage, dating to 1772, when the university hired an Italian scholar named Domenico Vandelli to begin building Coimbra's science faculty. Vandelli was a celebrated naturalist, a contemporary and regular correspondent of Carl Linnaeus, who named a genus of plants after him. He was also an ambitious collector, and over his career he built an impressive personal museum in Padua, the kind of wunderkammer that was popular among aristocrats and intellectuals of the era. There were stones from Roman ruins, coins from distant countries, and a 17th century German automaton, a wind-up centaur fashioned out of silver that hurled arrows. There were also dozens of pieces of taxidermy from the far corners of the world. After Vandelli settled in Coimbra, the university persuaded him to bring his museum along too. The taxidermy collection, augmented in the next century with specimens brought back from Portugal's colonies, now occupies an L-shaped wing of the second floor of the science building, the top of a large limestone staircase. The natural history collection was open to the public by appointment only, and the three visitors didn't have one. They had already been turned away by the receptionist at the university's main science building across the street. But the biologist was feeling charitable, and she offered to show them around anyway. She unlocked the door and led them from one darkened room to the next, running ahead to find the light switches. The older man stayed close by her, following her into the darkness in a way that unnerved her. The other two lagged behind, taking pictures with their mobile phones. After several minutes, they reached the room that contained the bulk of Vandelli's collection. With its tiled floor, heavy red curtains, and exacting woodwork, the space exuded the slightly stuffy warmth of an earlier century. Its only nods to the present were some subtle light fixtures, and, tucked unobtrusively in a corner against the high ceiling, a security camera. Against one wall stood a human skeleton and a peacock in full plumage. Next to them was a lion, stuffed by a taxidermist with an uncertain grasp of anatomy, the beast's face curiously broad and flat, with a hint of a smile, like a person wearing a lion mask. Along the opposite wall, a bank of wood and glass cabinets contained an array of tropical birds, small primates, and jungle-dwelling rodents. Standing guard at either door were a pair of stuffed manatees, whose oiled hides had aged into something resembling obsidian. As the tour concluded, the ruddy-faced man, the only one of the visitors who ever spoke, asked the biologist an odd question. Did the university ever loan out pieces of its taxidermy collection for the weekend? She demurred, but he seemed appreciative anyway. He told her they'd enjoyed themselves and would bring their families for a visit later that month. Sixteen days later, another university employee was walking through the room that housed Vandelli's collection when she felt that something was not quite right. Upon closer inspection, she noticed that one of the cabinet doors was slightly ajar. Inside, everything appeared to be in its proper place, with one exception. A pair of rhinoceros horns was missing. 
They didn't damage anything, Casalero told me, pointing to the cabinet where the horns had been. They didn't even break the glass. It was a Tuesday afternoon in November 2013, and Casalero, a trim man in his 40s with dark brown hair graying at the temples and the bearing of an earnest graduate student, had agreed to show me the scene of the theft. After the horns were reported missing, he told me, the first thing he did was check the security video. We had cameras in every room, he said. Reviewing the footage from around 5 p.m. the previous Tuesday, he saw them, two figures, entering through the western end of the wing. They moved quickly toward the room that held most of Vandelli's collection, walked to the cabinet containing the two rhino horns, and carefully pried the door open. One of the men removed the horns and began zipping them up inside a backpack. When the backpack proved too small, they took off their jackets and rolled the horns up inside them, then tucked the bundles under their arms and left, strolling out of the building into the late afternoon sunlight.